War in Ukraine, COVID, the Biden presidency, and the elections. You are listening to The John DePietro Show. You're listening to The John DePietro Show, folks. It's AM 1380, 99.9 FM. You can always listen online at the website, dePietro.com. It's Friday. This portion of our program brought to you by PR Landscape Materials and Garden Center, Rhode Island's number one garden center, folks. They are open. They're having a fantastic season. Stop it and see them. Annuals, perennials, trees, shrubs, hanging pots, hanging patients, large section, beautiful patio pots, vegetable plants and herbs, tropical mandibillas, hibiscus plants, everything you need to make your home or workplace a showplace, full-scale nursery, Gift certificates are available. They're open seven days a week. Look for them on Facebook. It's PR Landscape Materials and Garden Center. Well, folks, we have made it to Friday. And um, it's interesting that gun laws, how gun laws now are going to be switching. And you, you have to obviously look at uh, closer to home here in Rhode Island. Obviously, we have the situation uh, nationally with the Supreme Court weighing in. But you have to just wonder, you know, locally, uh, Governor McKee in such a hurry to have the photo op with uh, everyone in the red shirts surrounding him, like he's the Messiah signing this gun legislation, uh, thumbing his nose at the Constitution. You just have to wonder if this is, in fact, going to stand up. But the Wall Street Journal, Supreme Court vindicates the Second Amendment. Six to three majority recognizes right to carry guns in public. For self-defense, the Supreme Court 6-3 ruling, gun rights, boils down to this. The Second Amendment doesn't disappear when you walk out your front door. Stated that way, it sounds obvious. Many appeal judges have disagreed. For a frustrating decade, the Supreme Court was too gun-shy to set them straight. But Clarence Thomas' majority opinion was worth the wait. And this all came from this New York State Rifle Pistol Association. They challenged New York's regulations carrying a firearm in public open carry in new york is banned also in rhode island with certain exceptions such for judges getting a permit to carry a handgun requires uh, demonstrating proper cause that means special need well the supreme court was not having any of it and thankfully stepped in now they also write, this does not mean urban America will soon resemble the Wild West. 43 states already have shell-issue regimes, meaning carry permits available to everyone who meets objective criteria. Process can be vigorous, might include fingerprinting, firearms training, background checks, so forth. So the court is not calling such rules into question. So, But the good news is what's unconstitutional is that six states, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Massachusetts, California, Hawaii, offer residents no clear path to carry a gun and defend themselves so now i know that people are also waiting for them to weigh in on the magazine i i still think that is going to be challenged as well um keep in mind you know governor mckee doing that i think one of the, the biggest things is just the fact that it was done for effect now i also want to make mention folks um th- this this situation in cumberland with the double homicide certainly seems to be a a murder suicide of this couple i was there last night if you want to see the video it is um it's on the website to petro.com but uh just a oh, terrible horrific story now there's another story in channel 12 is a picture i saw this photo a short time ago six people to the hospital and um um a car crashed into a tree. Three of the victims were taken to Rhode Island Hospital, two to Hasbro. It's unclear what caused it. You know, people need to look at what that photo looks like of the vehicle and what happens when someone's traveling at a high rate of speed and then crash the way they do. But I want to just come back to the Cumberland story just for a moment. And that is... um Folks, you just, it, it, it's just so, well, actually, Channel 12 has a, a good piece on it because they have been identified. But I was out there last night. I mean, a very quiet street. They have three children. It's so out of the norm. 
husband and wife found dead inside their home. I mean, by all accounts we're hearing, it was the husband, for whatever reason, shot his wife and then took his own life. With three children, one of them called 911. This is the um, Channel 12 story. News now. I'm Adriana Roses Rivera. Police have identified the married couple that was found dead in their home in Cumberland yesterday. 42-year-old Courtney Heward and 51-year-old Eric Heward suffered from gunshot wounds and were pronounced dead at the scene. Their three kids were found safe inside the Birchwood Drive home when police responded around 6.40 a.m. No word yet on the circumstances of what led up to both of their deaths, but we're tracking the story on WPRI.com and 12 News. I'm Adriana Rivera. You know, again, I went out there. Um, you could see the video. Obviously, Cumberland Police, they have the house locked down uh, uh, 24-7. Police in front, police in back. Just, folks, you just don't know. But it. I know it is shaking the town. It is shaking the neighborhood. Um, I, I also... It, I think you're going to start to see, for instance, I'm already hearing that there is now a lawsuit regarding some of the gun laws by uh, that Governor McKee has put into action. I want to play some of the, um, this is a package that Channel 10 did as well. I can't get over this East Greenwich crash. My God, the car is just, the car looks like the, the front end. This looks like an accordion, the way it was bent in half. All right, this is the Channel 10 story about this latest uh, gun legislation. After Governor Dan McKee signed several gun control measures into law, too, NBC 10's Jody Reid is live at the State House with Who's Behind the Challenge. Jody, good morning. Good morning, Governor Dan McKee just signed three bills to ban high-capacity magazines, prevent the open carry of loaded rifles, and raise the age to buy ammunition. And now there is a legal challenge to their legality. The lawsuit just filed alleges that the new laws violate the Fifth Amendment, the Second Amendment, and the due process claims in the Fourteenth Amendment. A Providence law firm filed the suit on behalf of Big Bear Hunting and Fishing Supply in Harmony. Attorneys claim that the laws will harm responsible gun owners across the state, something Governor Dan McKee told NBC10 he disagrees with. No one's taken away the right for someone to have, uh, a, you know, a, a gun in their home to protect them and their property. Uh, and um, so that that rights not being taken away. Yeah, except he's got 24 hour, seven day a week protection from the state police. Uh, and now the hits keep coming with the. The hits keep coming with now in the Republican Party of Rhode Island, how Blake Filippi, who at one time was seen as a rising star announced that he's not seeking re-election. I don't know what to make of that story. His vote, um, Mike Chippendale, by the way, is now going to be the House Minority Leader. Uh, I, I don't know what to make of that. I know Blake. I haven't had a chance to talk to him. Actually, I haven't talked to him in a little bit. But um, he, his vote regarding illegals and the driver's license sounds like he just wants to do something else. Folks, as many of you know, listen, the state's at a pivotal time, and it's um, it's it's very, very unfortunate that uh, all we can hope for, okay, he doesn't want to do it anymore for whatever reason, um, all you can hope for is that he gave them enough notice, and the fact is that they will have someone to then slide into that. But right now, the General Assembly is just a runaway train. This is going to require, and I believe it's the state senate. I know those are tougher races than because uh, they're it's larger territory, but the senate is the place where, if Republicans could get a people, a few people elected up at the state house, that that could that could prove to be a big difference. This is such a pivotal election for the Rhode Island Republican Party. They need all the support and effort they can get. They're not catching any breaks. Um, you know, they're still having trouble finding candidates to fill out these statewide office runs. And then you have someone who's the minority leader who's not only choosing not to run for a higher office, he's not going to hold on to his own office. So, you know, it, it's um, it, it's too bad he's then not even going for like Senator Dennis Algier's seat. That would be better to then maybe put Blake Filippi in the, the state Senate as opposed to then just him vacating. 
So I can't stress enough the importance of this this election cycle we're in right now with the primary coming up September 13th and then the general election will be in November. The state continues to be out of step with the direction uh, the country is going. All right, folks, much more ahead right here on the John DePietro Show. Time means grill time. And for the best grill, get a new grill. Stop in and see my friends. Jay's Broadway Appliance and TV. Jay apostrophe yes, Broadway Appliance and TV. Located 47 Cedar Swamp Road. That's Route 5 Smithfield. You can call them 401-949-7800. Springtime, summer, this is the best time to grill outside. They have a great selection on grills. They also have a great selection on all appliances. Family-run business since 1963. Remember, you're going to deal directly with the owner, and they will match or beat any package deal when it comes to appliances. Do you need a new refrigerator? How about a new dishwasher, washing machine, dryer, oven, microwave, Jay's Broadway Appliance? Look for them online at jsappliance.com, also on Facebook, springtime summer is grill time stop in and see them they're open monday through friday from 10 to 5 you can make an appointment for more personal saturday and sunday appointments jay's broadway appliance and tv 401-949-7800 better yet drive in and see them 47 cedar swamp road route 5 in smithfield you're listening to the John DePietro Show, folks. It's AM 1380, 99.9 FM. You can always listen online at our website, DePietro.com. Joining right now, former chief of the U.S. Border Patrol, retired acting ICE director, 34 years in government as a Border Patrol agent. Joining us right now, of course, is Ron Vitello. Ron, it's John DePietro. Welcome to the program, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, good morning, John. Glad to be with you. Ron, I want to start off. This is uh, absolute insanity. Uh, I'm curious, your thought, with all your experience, all your years, the uh, the amount of surge we have right now at the border. Yeah, it's the uh, it's the worst surge we've seen in, uh, on the southwest border in the history of that entire border. Uh, upon the commencement of this administration, they removed the tools that were available, the tools that abated the last surge at the border under the previous administration. Uh, and on day one, they, they took those policies and destroyed them and in turn have destroyed the border, putting border communities and the rest of the country and the entire homeland at risk because we've sent a signal around the globe uh, that if you want to come to the border illegally, uh, now's the time to do it. Mexico stopped helping us. Why did they do that? Well, they got lots of problems in Mexico, but they're not about to help us when our own domestic policy, when our own immigration policy does not adhere to the rule of law. So lots of people in the pipeline, lots of people at risk uh, to include the men and women across the United States. These people don't stay at the border uh, when they cross the U.S.-Mexico border. They come all they come to this economy. They come all over the United States. Uh, some of them are at great risk for being trafficked by smugglers. Uh, and because the Border Patrol is so overwhelmed, because the facilities are so overwhelmed, because there's so many people to get into the system, uh, the smugglers and the cartels uh, are stuffing their pockets with the fees for smuggling, and they're able to smuggle at will. So while our economy crashes and inflation goes through the roof, uh, the cartels uh, on the southwest border, who largely control that territory now, uh, are getting rich off of the feckless policies of this administration. What type of numbers are we talking about for the month of May? May is over just nearly 240,000. It's the largest single month on record. And what's important to know about that, those are just the encounters that are in the system that CBP can record. It does not account for the many people who come to the southwest border and are never encountered by law enforcement. And because, like I said, the Border Patrol is so consumed with the surge of humanity, the smugglers can move things and people across the border at will. And so many people come to that southwest border and are never encountered by law enforcement. And it isn't just people from Central and South America. It isn't just people from Mexico. It's people from all over the globe, places that we would never go on vacation uh, you know, to, 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 to take our families to because they don't care about the American way of life. In fact, uh, many places in the world where you know we need to be suspicious of them, like Russia, like China, 
uh, and other places. How are these numbers compared to, say, when President Trump was in office? Well, we did have some surges <laughs> under Trump, nothing this big. The problem that we see today is much, much larger. And I, I was in that administration that the president, I was lucky enough to be nominated by him to be the, the ICE director. And you could tell from the moment he took office, from the moment we started interacting with him, he was dedicated to giving the American people a secure border and an immigration system that had integrity. Um, that is not the case in this administration. They have done exactly the opposite. They have promoted policies that promote an open border, and 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 that's that's the, the problem that we have. Yeah, there were there were issues under Trump. We had a surge at the border in 19 and 20, but it was abated. He gave us tools to solve that problem. The problem was largely solved when this administration took over. They had 30-year lows in activity at the southwest border, and now, like I said, we're seeing the worst surge ever. Ron, what type of numbers are we looking at just the past 16 months under President Biden? Well, it's millions of people who have come to the southwest border just in the last 18 months. Um, So we ended the last fiscal year, I think it was 1.3. We're almost double that. And last year was a record. So you you could see well over two. It was well over two million a couple of months ago. uh, And that's just encounters again. That doesn't account for the for for the lack of control, the lack of patrol resources that are at the immediate border because the border patrol is so consumed uh, with this activity, with this surge. You have places like uh, like Yuma, Arizona, Del Rio, Texas, where the border patrol cannot even deploy people to go to the southwest border, cannot go and respond to sensors, cannot patrol the border because they're so busy uh, in dealing with the traffic at hand. Folks, again, uh, you're listening to the John DePietro Show. With us right now is, in fact, Ron Vitello, former chief of staff, U.S. Border Patrol, retired acting ICE director. Now, Ron, here's something else that uh, people should understand is there is certainly a direct correlation with the amount of deadly fentanyl that is coming over. These people aren't coming over empty-handed. Well, that's a good point. Like I said, the, the smugglers have ultimate control of what goes across that line. That's how cartels vie with their power on, on the southwest border. They, they allow smugglers or they tax smugglers or they, or they tax and traffic uh, the people themselves. And so they're in control of what happens. And it is not a coincidence that we're losing tens and thousands of Americans every year uh, to the opioid crisis uh, and fentanyl overdoses. Many of these drugs come across the border uh, because, again, the Border Patrol is busy doing this other work that they have to do, putting people in the system, booking in what they call processing. Uh, and so this allows the, the smugglers to smuggle at will. And it, it's not a coincidence that so many people are dying at the same time our southwest border is completely out of control. And finally, um, Ron, you know, a little bit of pushback. President Biden, he claims that the border's under control and Vice President Harris in control of the border. She claims the border's under control. They have no idea what they're doing. They have no uh, interest in securing the southwest border. They ask us not to believe our own eyes. You can see the images on television. You can see the numbers purported by their own agency. Uh, if, if the border was in control, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. We'd all be very comfortable, and, and we wouldn't be at the kind of risk that they're at now. 240,000 encounters in one month is completely out of control and many of those people after they're encountered by cbp with a brief stay through the processing and booking procedure are being released in the united states almost a hundred thousand people have been released just this year alone folks again uh the border continues to dominate uh nothing good about this certainly seems like an open border he is ron vitello and again former chief of u.s uh, border patrol 34 years in government and uh, also, obviously, as a Border Patrol agent. Ron, thank you for joining us. Keep up the great work, and we'll talk to you again. It was great talking to you. Thanks a lot. J. Perry Paving. Folks, you can depend on J. Perry Paving. They provide high-quality, fair pricing, exceptional service, over 20 years' experience, specializing in commercial paving, residential paving, seal coating patios, and much more. Call them today for a free quote, 401 732 1730 j perry paving they are tremendous they also how about this once a month 
they provide a free paved driveway to a veteran. And remember, whether it's a brand new paving project or just a cracked driveway that needs to be refreshed, call J. Perry Paving for a free quote. It makes a huge difference in your property, in your home, in your driveway or patio. 401-732-1730. J. Perry Paving. 401-732-1730. You can also find them on Facebook. They're terrific. Hey, get that driveway paved. Call and book an appointment now, 401-732-1730 for J. Perry Paving. You're listening to the John DePietro Show, folks. It's AM 1380, 99.95. Joining us right now, he is the National Right to Work Committee President, and we're going to discuss President Biden and what he has plans with his pals at the AFL-CIO, and it's our friend President Mark Mix. Um, thank you for joining us once again, Mark Mix. John, good to be with you, and thanks for the opportunity to chat about uh, the recent speech by Biden at the AFL-CIO convention. Mark, talk a little bit about that, and especially uh, something that should frighten everyone is this business of Biden and the support for the so-called PRO Act. Yeah, absolutely, John. That's uh, probably the primary objective of organized labor in this legislative session, a bill that's already passed the House of Representatives with no committee hearings and no testimony. Um, it is on uh, pending in the Senate committee. Uh, the bill would first and foremost wipe out all 27 right-to-work laws across the country. Uh, those laws are very simple. They say that workers can join unions, participate in unions, and you know run for office in unions, give their entire paycheck to unions if they want to, but they can't lose their job if they decide they don't want to financially support the labor union. They're very, very simple. Uh, they're in place in 27 states, and the PRO Act would wipe them all out by federal decree. Um, additionally, in that bill, there's a move toward card check unionization, taking away uh, opportunities for secret ballot elections for union certification. That means that, John, you know, three of my buddies and I can show up at your front porch and, and have you sign this card saying that, you know, hey, we can say everything we want. We can say you're going to get your pay raise or you get more insurance. And that card, the signature on that card turns out to be a vote for unionization and is very, very difficult to withdraw. That's in there. A secondary boycotts, the idea that, uh, you know, unions can go protest at a customer's house or a customer's business, and, then, and that customer calls the target, the company that's trying to be unionized, and says, you know, what's going on? I got union people all over my shop over here. They want you to, to recognize the union. Uh, what do I do about this? And so far under American labor law, that's, it, that's illegal, but the secondary boycott is something that would be authorized by the PRO Act. So, it's pending in the Senate. It's, uh, they, they've got little time to get it done with the elections looming on the horizon, John. And I think politically, there are a lot of folks that probably say, we don't want to get into that. We're glad to mouth support for it. But if we actually vote for it, it's going to be damaging to the economy, like most of the policies that Joe Biden has uh, that involve big labor. Mark Mix, it's, it's frightening even that, uh, that President Biden would even, I mean, this is so different than what President Trump would do. But just the fact that he supports this PRO Act is I mean, to me, that, that shows how much they just control the Biden administration. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when he when he came on the stage in, in Philadelphia the other day, he, uh, you know, to standing ovations of union officials, not rank-and-file workers, frankly, John, because there's a big and a growing divide between rank-and-file workers and the the so-called union officials that represent them. And, you know, he came out and, and uh, talked about, you know, you're the ones that brought me here and all the money and all the power that you give me. And, you know, you guys are, uh, the, you, you, come, you, you go to the dance, you go home from the dance with the ones that brought you and all this good stuff. And for Frankly, it's just amazing to hear what he's got to say about, you know, union, you know, being the most pro-union president in American history. If you're in the energy sector, if you were working on the Keystone Pipeline or you're working on an oil rig, a wildcat or out in, you know, on federal lands doing exploration and, and drilling, uh, 14,000 of those types of employees who all had union cards in their pocket were basically on the unemployment line after Joe Biden took office. And, you know, the union officials that represent those workers uh, endorsed him, gave money to him and helped Helped him get elected, which is true. I mean, he says that uh, openly. They they were the reason why he got elected. But yet, when we think about you know the Trump election in 2016, we know this: that rank and file workers in Michigan and Wisconsin and Ohio and Illinois and Indiana, those states where Trump won, surprisingly. It, it, it goes without saying that rank-and-file union members crossed over from the advice, and I'm using my finger quotes here, John, the advice that union officials gave them about who to vote for and voted for Donald Trump, who wanted to secure our borders and, and uh, lower taxes and lower you know, government regulations and uh, reduce government regulations. 
and yet that agenda, which is which is right on the sweet spot for most Americans, particularly most Americans in the workplace, that are now paying you know six dollars for a gallon of gas, and and they can't believe the prices at the grocery store when they go there to shop for food for their families. You know that disconnect is growing wider and wider, but yet you know the mainstream media touts this uh, speech to the working people of America, and frankly, John, as you know, only six point one percent of the private sector workforce is unionized today. So when he's up there talking about labor and labor policy and all this, he's trying to give favors to that very, very small group of union elites that are the ones that, quote, give him the money to, uh, you know, to get reelected or to get elected. Folks, again, we're speaking with National Right to Work Committee President Mark Mix. And Mark, just so people have an understand, there, there's an awful lot of political spending at stake, and, and they're not afraid to spend it the way they did in 2020. Yeah, absolutely, John. You know, when we think about political spending and what the media spins out there is that, you know, you have the Soroses and the Koch brothers and you have the RNC, the Republican National Committee, the Democrat National Committee, and you have other, you know, uh, hedge fund titans that are out there pouring millions of dollars into races, which they are. But when you tally up the money that you organize labor spends on politics, which, you know, there's a couple different ways to look at it, but the, the most base way to look at it is what they report on their LM2 forms and their, their political action reports with the government every two years after these elections. And, and it's easy to find almost $2 billion in political spending. And then if you start overlaying the state activity from the state unions that don't file these types of reports because they don't have private sector workers like the NEA and other unions uh, that represent government employees, the number grows so dramatically and so quickly that it's enormous. And people, you know, it's almost unbelievable. But when Justice Alito ruled in our Janus versus uh, AFSCME case at the U.S. Supreme Court almost four years ago to the day, John, he said that everything that government unions do is political because they're trying to redress and control the direction of government. And we've seen that in the schools. We're seeing that. I mean, unfortunately, we're seeing it in the schools and just how powerful they are. But all that money is is basically deemed to be political. And, and so they're trying to elect the bosses that they will sit down at the table with and negotiate with. And so once you start adding those numbers in, you can get to, you know, 10, 11, 12 billion dollars every two years for political and lobbying activity. Folks, again, we'll speak with our friend Mark Mix. And Mark, can you touch on also the situation with uh, AFL-CIO leader Frank Schneider in Pennsylvania? Yeah, you know, I wish I could, John. That was one of those great mysteries that kind of popped up right before the AFL-CIO convention in Philadelphia. He was supposed to be named the state president of the AFL-CIO, and all of a sudden, there's a press release put out that says he's no longer going to be the president. They've put somebody else in, and Liz Shuler, the, uh, the, the new president of the AFL-CIO, who replaced Richard Trumka, who passed away last year, um, she basically said, you know, it's an internal matter, nothing happened there, but boy, John, it seems like to me that the Office of Labor Management Standards at the Department of Labor ought to be interested in what happened there, because if it's financial malfeasance, then the rank-and-file workers across the state of Pennsylvania need to know about that. They need to know what happened. Just like the bosses of the UAW, of which 14 top executives are in jail today for financial malfeasance and stealing and, and using union members' money to go to Palm Springs and play golf and buy $400 bottles of champagne. I mean, this was it's, it's kind of a cover-up right now. It, it'd be interesting to see what happened there and whether any information comes out about what Mr. Snyder did to basically deny him uh, the presidency, the office of the presidency of the Pennsylvania AFL-CIO when he was, I guess, duly elected to, to be sworn in at the convention in Philadelphia. Wow. Mark, can you just also go back on the PRO Act? That is really uh, amazing, simply because, you know, the states that, that have become right-to-work states, um, you know, Florida, North Carolina, um, Florida, North Carolina, I believe Ohio, it's, um, you know, there's a lot of people that felt that it's, it's, it's tragic that Rhode Island, if Rhode Island would pivot into that, how Rhode Island really could have stood out uh, in New England, probably be the, I think the closest right-to-work state would have been Ohio, but that's um that's incredible boy they they never let down their guard they're always trying to cut in and felt they finally had a president that would try to push across this pro act to get rid of the right to work status yeah well actually west virginia is the closest now they oh, west virginia and virginia okay. are both right to work states ohio's not a right to work state yet oh. john we're working on that okay. but we'll get there we'll get there absolutely but yeah you're right i mean the idea of union officials and their opposition is so crystal clear as to why because they want the money they yep. don't want to have to go out and sell their product to workers they they don't know how to do that and frankly since 1935 actually 1937 when the supreme court upheld the federal wagner act which is now known as the national labor relations act they have had 
government authority and government privilege to say to you, John, look, if you don't pay us, you don't work. I mean, that's the federal policy. And so, you know, after this power that developed from that point to 19, to the end of World War II, uh, 1946, union officials grew, you know, astronomically. Union membership and union power grew during that period. In 1947, the Congress passed the Taft-Hartley Act, which said states could, by affirmative vote, outlaw the closed shop, which is in place in 23 states where literally, if you don't pay union dues, the union official goes to the employer, your employer says, John hasn't paid, John has to be fired. And that's the way the law works, and it's federally imposed. And so the states that have right to work protect workers against that. But because it's a federally granted privilege to the states to pass right to work uh, laws, Joe Biden could, with a stroke of a pen, wipe out all 27 right to work laws and go back under this federal forced unionism authority that exists since the 1930s. And before I let you go, could you just highlight some of the, just say that like the top five or top ten right to work states that they're really thriving with business? Yeah, in Michigan, Indiana, South Carolina, North Carolina, Texas, uh, Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia. I'll keep going if you want, John. But wow. Suffice to say, that's where that's where the growth in America is. Nevada, Arizona, uh, Idaho. Uh, you know, those are the states that are actually growing and creating opportunities for young families to to have uh, a better standard of living than in in state. Unfortunately, states like Rhode Island and Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, and and California and, and uh, Illinois and those states that still allow union officials to have that dramatic power over workers. Uh, Folks, he is the National Right to Work Committee President, Mark Mix. Mark, before I let you go, how can people log on to learn more about the National Right to Work Committee? Yeah, John, thanks. They can find us on that amazing internet at www.nrtwc.org, nrtwc.org. Mark Mix, the people are with you. Keep up the good work, and we'll talk to you again. Thanks, John. Propane Plus. For heating and cooling, call Propane Plus today in Massachusetts, 508-252-3359. In Rhode Island, Propane Plus number 401-885-4209. It's the Johnson family. It's Propane Plus, the leading full-service provider of propane to Rhode Island and Southeastern Mass. Not only can they install your tank and schedule propane deliveries, but they can service your entire heating, cooling system, and install any propane or natural gas appliances. Locations in East Greenwich and also in Rehoboth. Remember, Propane Plus is energy for everyone. It's affordable, sustainable, equitable, good for the environment, and also now it's renewable. Online at propaneplus.com. Propane Plus, heating and cooling. In Massachusetts, call the Rehoboth office, 508-252-3359. And in Rhode Island, 401 401- 885-4209. You can depend on Propane Plus. Folks, you are listening to the John DePietro Show weekdays. We start at 11. We go until 2. It's AM 1380, 99.9 FM. You can always listen online at the website, DePietro.com. It's time for our legal segment. Joining us right now, one of Rhode Island's top attorneys. He's our legal expert. It is attorney Tim Dodd. And Tim, I'd like to uh, start off the latest now with the situation, this ongoing missing persons case in Warwick, Charlotte. Last, uh, just to recap, folks, she was last seen, a Warwick woman, uh, Monday night, May 16th. She was apparently headed to a home she had been familiar with on Staples Avenue in Warwick. Uh, the police then, that following Saturday, basically set up a crime scene where they sat on the house for a month. Um. And then last Friday, they left. They had been there for a month, 24-7. They dug up the septic system. It remains a missing person's case. Right now, the owner of the home is is not back into the home. And I want to have a, a little bit of right now. She has not been found. This remains a missing person's case. Uh, the accused, well, not the accused, he's not the accused, just the owner of the home, I should say, does have an attorney, which makes sense. But Tim Dodd, uh, for, for now, just where does this stand as far as the, the police investigation? They went out of their way to tell me that it, it still remains a case of top priority to them. Well, it, unfortunately, um, we are all left sort of in limbo. We don't really yeah. know. I mean, what, what are the various hypotheticals that could be the case? She could have come 
into a situation where there was some criminal conduct that was perpetrated against her. Let's hope not, but that's a possibility. Let's assume, um, again, these are all speculative situations. She could have taken her own life and they haven't found her yet. Arguably, that's as likely as anything else right now, um, yep. except for the police presence. Um, she could have this said, I need a break and, you know, checked out of Rhode Island for a while, but it's hard to do that without leaving an electronic footprint, using your credit cards, being caught on surveillance videos. It's hard to disappear if that was her intent. Um, so we really don't know if we have a simple missing persons case. We don't know if this missing person is alive or dead. Um, and if it's dead, it could be from natural reasons or self-inflicted reasons. We really don't know if there's anything criminal that's happened. It would appear that the police have a good suspicion because, as you say, John, they've had a perimeter around um, the house on Staples Avenue. They've had 24-hour police presence. They don't do that for nothing. Um, the owner of that home if he is considered in any regard a person of interest, is smart to have lawyered up. And um, as we've discussed before, if the person had some involvement, he should say nothing if he's listening to a lawyer. And if he didn't have anything to do with this, I'm sure he'd be very cooperative because he'd want to make sure the cops find his friend. But we really don't know if the man is cooperating or not cooperating. We don't know if there are other suspects who are either cooperating or not cooperating. And when I say suspect, I mean person of interest. We're, sure. we're just really blindfolded. The cops are not sharing much. I think they are correct to do that, to keep their cards close to the vest, to not share too much information. If they expect that there's some foul play in this particular matter, um, they may well be waiting for whoever they suspect to have been engaged in some bad behavior to make a mistake. Sure. Um, and if that hasn't happened, then they still don't have anything to go on. So it's a patience game. It's a waiting game. And um, it's frustrating for those of us who have been following this case. But you just have to watch and wait and see what develops next. If a mistake is made, if a person turns up live, if a person shows up um, or is found to be uh, deceased, we, we, we just don't know. Or if the, the person is never found. And Tim Todd, if at some point this individual never shows up, but and I'm going to go on a hypothetical, but the police or whatever, you know, they feel that they do have enough evidence to bring some kind of charges against someone in the case. What would, would that be, you know, is this something that ends up in front of a grand jury or could they suddenly just one day issue an arrest warrant? It would likely be in front of a grand jury. And, okay. you know, typically if there's no body found, there would have to be other um, extrinsic evidence, you know, blood found, hair found, you know, um, weapon found, something found to tie a um, suspect or a charged defendant to the crime. Um, the old adage we've discussed it many times is, you know, prosecutors say there's a difference between what I know and what I can prove. Sure. So you might get to a point where you think we know that this particular person is involved in this incident, but proving it in front of a jury beyond a reasonable doubt, it's a totally different kettle of fish and mm. without a body. And if you have an individual, let's say, who is not talking, who is not doing anything that's ultimately going to blow up in their face because they're coming up with a story to try to appease the police, if a suspect, any suspect, sticks to their guns, doesn't say anything, doesn't cooperate, um, it can be very difficult for the cops to go oh. forward. Many, cops will tell you many times their cases are made because they bring in a witness. They've got different techniques. Sure. They play the good yep. cop, bad cop. They, they've got their whole book of tricks. And um, many times it's through that process that they get a confession, an admission, or some inconsistencies in a statement that leads them to dig down further and ultimately get the person. 
So if you've got a person who's going to really keep quiet um, and there's never a body found, um, it could be a very inconclusive situation for a long time, which may not result in any charges. Tim Dodd, a question I always get asked is what, what are the circumstances of when something goes to a grand jury and does not? People will routinely mention like the O.J. Simpson case, you know, those bodies were discovered on a, on a Monday, uh, you know, by Friday, they, they were already issuing an arrest warrant for Simpson who was supposed to be in, you know, how, what, what is the difference between when they go the grand jury route or they don't go the grand jury route? Well, if they have enough physical evidence that they're willing to charge based upon the police investigation, um, they can do that. Many times the cops have to act quickly to preserve evidence. You know, they wanted to get, I'm sure at that point into, um, see what they could get OJ to say, if anything, his cooperation, if anything, um, if there's enough physical evidence, um, you don't have to necessarily do the grand jury. And, and finally, uh, Tim Dodd, as much as, you know, people uh, may not like it. It's again, that the person, the owner of the home doesn't, uh, you know, people don't like to hear that, but they, they doesn't have to say anything. They, they don't have to uh, cooperate. And, and another part of this is what people don't understand is you, you can't, if you could explain, you can't just like, all right, well, we're going to charge him and then we're going to try to build a case around it. You, you, you have to, I mean, if anything, the Simpson case served as an example. If they had waited, he wasn't going anywhere. If they had been more patient, Marsha Clark and so forth, if they had ta- taken a little more time, they, they could have, you know, really tied a lot of things in together, tied up some loose, loose ends. And then, then when they present their case, they had, they would have presumably had everything nailed down. One of the biggest problems with that case seemed to be, they just, they moved far too quickly. Well, they moved far too quickly. And, you know, because OJ had lots of money to do a real deep dive in, um, analyzing the police work with all due respect to the LAPD, there was some sloppy police work. There was some sloppy collection of the blood evidence, um, Mm. um, preservation of evidence, the glove. I mean, many, many things in that case, right. For the garden variety type of case would have been fine. But when you've got a team with money and experience who are going to drill down on every little tidbit, um, they were able to produce a lot of things to show that the LAPD uh, messed the case up. Now, right. should the jury have been convinced by the DNA material that was produced in those experts? I mean, if the jury got it, and I don't mean any disrespect to the jury, but this DNA stuff can get very dense and convoluted sure. and hard to understand. But yep. forget the glove, forget all the other little inconsistencies you know the dna evidence should have Mm. um resulted in a conviction but it didn't um so those kind of things happen you know if you had a do-over maybe they would have taken more time they would have done a more thorough investigation they wouldn't have raced through it the way they did but um i don't think oj was ever going to get convicted based upon the jury and the forum that he was in and right. the way the judge Just conducted that trial. Ron Goldman's blood in the Bronco. I mean, that kind of normal. In more, most cases, that would, would be enough. A stranger he'd never met just having the blood in his car. But in this particular instance, it didn't seem to matter. Folks, quick break. Much more ahead. Our legal expert, attorney Tim Dodd, right here on the John DePietro Show. Portion of the program brought to you by the Coesit Inn. Check them out on the website, dipietro.com, the Coesit Inn, or Rhode Island Tradition since 1977 located 226 coesed avenue in west warwick whether it's lunch or dinner or drinks in the lounge whether a nice dinner or even just appetizers there's always a great crowd you can link directly to them and gift certificates are available the coesed inn 226 coesed avenue in west warwick folks you're listening to the john DePietro show it's am 1380 99.9 fm joining us right now author of the bodies of others new authoritarians COVID-19, the war against humans, is the one and only Naomi Wolf. Naomi, it's the John DePietro Show. Congratulations on your new book. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. Walk us through a little bit, the bodies of others and the new new authoritarians. Absolutely. 
so the basic premise of the book is that unfortunately uh the pandemic of the last two years was a pretext for a handful of bad actors ranging from bad nonprofits like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to bad transnational entities like the World Economic Forum, which is recently in the news uh, with a power grab against everyone basically in the world, Um, bad tyrannical nations like the CCP, like China, and and big tech companies specifically um, to basically make war against the West, to make war against America in particular. Um, We are a special target. To make war against American values and culture and kind of emotional reactions, and specifically to target our children, um, to kind of change our world so that it would be a post-humane world in which uh, we basically have to ask permission of technology and our overlords in order to just do human things and have basic human communication and connection um, and that they did it for profit um, and that you know basically they exploited policies which really turned out to have made no sense medically like distancing which didn't do anything or closing everything down you know the data are in that states that closed down like florida did exactly the same as states i'm sorry other way around states that were wide open like florida did the same as states that closed down like new york countries that closed down did the same as countries that stayed open like sweden um you know data are in that masks barely make a difference except to lower our kids iq by 21 points according to a brown university study um and so all but you know all of these policies that don't make sense medically and people are scratching their heads saying i don't get it you know masks don't work i don't get it distancing doesn't work uh nothing's nothing's working um they all really do make sense if you look at the goals of tech companies and the profits that they made in the last two years and basically i'm a ceo of a tech company so i do understand this um tech companies are really jealous of human capabilities they can't compete with them uh an emoji can't compete with a smile you know um nothing you can do on digital platforms is as impactful as getting together with 300 of your neighbors in a town hall or worshiping together in a church or synagogue or in-person learning of your child in a classroom with other human children and a human teacher so with lockdown policies they were able to really kill off that competitive advantage that human beings have in human communication, human culture, human spaces, and shift um, all that activity with all of that profit onto digital platforms. And I show um, the reader and the bodies of others how uh, these companies net revenue went up by, you know, 20 to 40% over the last two years as a result of suppressing human beings. Folks, again, we're speaking with author Naomi Wolf. Naomi, now the front, the cover of the book is it's it's very uh, provocative. It's very compelling. Uh, when people see it, it's it's a child. It's a child with a mask on and the hand. It's it's almost as if the um, the the child. It, it's kind of like uh, it looks like the child's in a prison. Uh, could you just touch on that? That's by you know that that's a very thought provoking cover, and I think it's by design. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and thank you. I think uh, the cover says it all. Um, it's really, I think, iconic of what we've been through in the last two years, and, and, you know, they're not letting up. I mean, I just heard in one of my earlier radio segments today that masks are going back on the poor children of San Diego, and toddlers in New York City, where I used to live, um, are, are being subjected to masking, and their, their, their moms and dads are distraught, but nothing they are doing or saying is making a difference. Um, it is prison. And, you know, look at, look at the, the logical extension of this. Look at Shanghai. You know, the students are rioting at great risk to their lives and their families um, because they've been imprisoned in their dorm rooms um, and not allowed to go home, not allowed to, to circulate. Uh, you know, Shanghai, the, the people of Shanghai were locked in, you know, not allowed to leave. You know, their, their homes were turned into prisons. In Australia, which, you know, two years ago was a free, robust democracy, um, there are quarantine camps where they run after you with armed guards if you try to escape. Uh, in New York State, where I live and in Washington State, 
there are regulations. We narrowly defeated the one in Washington State. But Governor Hochul is coming at us in New York State with the same regulation to create quarantine camps where you can be held indefinitely pending a you know, court appeal um, if you've been, quote, exposed to a blood-borne pathogen. God knows what they have planned there with such specific wording. Um, but detained indefinitely. And people and our whole nation has become a prison and people just are not aware of it yet governor i'm sorry uh, president biden extended emergency powers in april of 2022 uh in but this time in an open-ended way with no terminus date and so what that means is that and then he he flowed billions of dollars without going through congress to health and human services um the methodology here and around the world is to weaponize public health to use public health to you know send in shock troops basically into and and to protect tyrants um but that's happened at the federal level and that means we're really not living under a democracy right now and the same thing is true in in new york state you know our governor re-ups emergency law every 30 days uh and uh and and there are 28 states across the country where people are living under emergency law and that means that if they want to send you know their public health mercenaries and declare, you know, an immediate public health crisis, they can do things that ordinary civil society and the Constitution do not allow them to do. And we're seeing this battle right now in the United States that, you know, lawyers are saying to courts, well, the Biden administration doesn't have the constitutional right to mask you on public transportation. And those lawyers won. You know, there are lawsuits saying, well, the you know, government doesn't have the right to inject our military against their will with an experimental mRNA injection, gene therapy. Um, and, you know, those fights are underway. Um, but this is this is a war being waged against us. And and even when you take a step back and you follow the argument I make in the bodies of others, even when technically we're not being soldered into our homes like the citizens of china um when you forbid a shop owner from opening his shop when you restrict people's assembly the way our assembly was restricted in lockdown i mean in new york state it was we were told we'd be fined if we had a you know a potluck of neighbors more than six people in our homes um or or if we gathered to worship of more than six people right um you know, these restrictions keep six feet apart. You know, don't let your child take his mask off or her mask off to breathe or to speak. This is carrying prison around with us. Yes. This is a conditioning of us to accept a feudal state in which we really are serfs and we really are at the mercy of whatever they will do to us next. Folks, again, it's a very compelling book. And the author, a uh, very, very provocative uh, esteemed Naomi Wolf, The Bodies of Others. Naomi, before I let you go, just one more thing. What, what's so disturbing is the irreparable damage done to children. During COVID, it continues. Obviously, you know, that, that child on the cover, it, it also just jumps out at me at what we're witnessing in Texas. Children are growing up in a much different world. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, I mean, I'm not I'm not sure. Do you mean by Texas that they're exposed to? Oh, I meant I meant when I look at that, I think of the children in the shooting that were then, you know, it. I think one of the most dramatic parts of that is the, the young child, nine years old, with, with the wherewithal to keep calling 911 as God. as the adults were standing outside in the hallway and not not doing anything. It was um, it was more than a 911 call. It was it was a plea for help for all children. And, yeah. and the adults, you know, the adults let them down. Naomi, congratulations. Good luck on your book tour. Excellent. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you. All right, folks. And again, that is Naomi Wolf right here on The John DePietro Show.